All right, welcome everybody to the returning into the Macroverse episode. As always, we are your hosts, Levi Hill. And I'm Jacob Willett, and thank you for sticking with us through this prolonged break. We had a bit of a busy fall, some stuff we were working on in the background, and, you know, trying not to fall behind on all those oh-so-important academics. But luckily, we're back to give you some fright-filled, wonderful times in winter. Yeah, and and instead of hitting those books, we are focusing on the adaptations. And for today's episode, we are focusing on Stephen King's film adaptation of his novella, In the Tall Grass. Now, keep in mind that uh, working on him with this was his son, Joe Hill. Yeah, they had, if I remember correctly, they had co-written it together, Mm -hmm. which I think is one of the few times. Yeah, they did. No relation to me, by the way. But I think that... um, I, you know, in, in our, when we watched this, I felt like this movie was a good I, starter point for Joe. Like, you could only go up from here. But You can only go up, yeah. I think that's how we feel about this for the most part. Because it definitely, we're not going to start bashing on it, but this definitely lacks some substance. It was definitely a little bit more lackluster, but if you want to get into the nitty-gritty and learn everything about what's creepy, what we think is going on, and of course our theories, stay tuned because you're listening to Into the Macroverse. For those nights when you can hear the sound of a dog barking, is it a dog or is that the howl of a werewolf? When you hear a clown laughing at you or the roar of a 1950s engine, and at your full speed. Join us as we go into the Macroverse. Welcome back. And you're listening to Into the Macroverse, the in-depth look at the Stephen King film adaptations where your hosts, Jacob Willett and Levi Hill, break it down. And, you know, like we said in the introduction, we're going to be focusing on Into the Tall Grass this week. Yeah, it surprisingly felt very, very similar to what we've already seen before. This kind of felt like a bit of a combination between 1922 and, of course, Children of the Corn. It really did. It felt like a nice little, they were trying to merge it together, especially with a lot of the symbolism within the film. But ultimately, it it, it just fell short for me in a lot of areas. That was all it really had going for it. And while I'm not one to talk about the ratings, I think in terms of Stephen King adaptations, this is one of the lowest rated on the Rotten Tomatoes score with about 36%. Which, you know... I, I, you know, a lot of people do criticize a lot of his movies, but even for you know a Stephen King adaptation, this was pretty low. Now, I, now I think we should really get into the plot of this novella flick. Yeah, so it really is a pretty straightforward plot. A brother and a sister enter a field of tall grass to rescue a boy, but they soon realize that they cannot escape, and something evil lurks within the grass. And so, as they are driving through Kansas which we figured out after struggling to figure out which Kiowa County we were talking about here. But they're going on their way from, which state did they start off in again? At least another 1,500 miles away from where they were in the movie. So I'm going to say 
maybe Iowa. I I think they might have said Nebraska, which would make sense considering every Stephen King film seems to have something to do with Nebraska. But their ultimate goal was to make their way to San Diego, where she could give up her child to a couple in San Diego, accompanied by her brother, which initially we found a little weird. But they stop in this weird church area yeah it's a little weird we'll get into that later but i told levi there are some things that we try not to address but this particular film really wants us to address it unfortunately it definitely made my skin crawl not in the standard creepy way but more in the ugh kind of way yeah we didn't have to do this yeah but you know what we 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 were ready to dive in and we did and like like my good The brother like, is in like love with his sister. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll leave it at that to your own devices. But the yeah, bottom line is, um, he he's after more than just some brotherly love. Yeah, and he's all jealous of her kind of dirtbag boyfriend who decided he was not ready for the child. Travis McKean is his name. But basically, they stop by this really creepy church where they hear this boy in the field crawling, crawling calling out for help within the grass that's true he does call out for help and he was pretty adamant are you there can you hear me i need help on it yeah and he so was totally but yeah he was was really adamant about his um i guess cry for help he was not gonna let them get away with an with a clean conscience if they were gonna leave he wanted to make them feel really bad about it <laughs> and so ultimately cal our wonderful brother goes in and decides that he's going to take the first step, which I think was kind of funny because he's like Captain Cal to the rescue. If you didn't know, Superman's name is Cal L. First starting with Cal. But he goes into the grass first and soon follows his sister, Becky. Yes. And it's very, I don't know. Personally, if I heard something screaming in the grass, I don't, I don't think I would make much of an effort to go in. And they're calling out for him, but every time they try to call, out for Tobin. Tobin is now suddenly in a different area. And with headphones on in this film, you can you can experience that um what's the word when when the um the audio circles around your head. You can just hear him moving all over the field, just trying to get them stuck within the grass. Yeah, you can you can definitely, you know, hear the different areas where they're coming from, that omnipotent presence around you, you could say. I love that. And word. it definitely it definitely makes you feel like you're surrounded. And it seems that as they go further into the grass, they're easily separated. And from there begins the chaos of not knowing where they're going as every twist and turn just leads them further and further apart, regardless of them following voices. Yeah, it kind of heads in a bit of a, a Blair Witch Project direction, but in a way that's a little bit more funny and kind of sad to watch rather than the terrifying experience that is Blair Witch. And then on top of it, what I thought was interesting was that if it almost felt like the grass itself was its own sentient being, with especially how there was a scene because they're clearly looking for each other, they decide, you know what, instead of following voices, we're going to jump up and raise our arms. And as they do so, they see each other, and they do it again, and suddenly they're way further apart than they were, what, two seconds ago? Yeah, the way that they play with time and space is really, it's pretty um hallucinatory. It really throws you off of your own spatial awareness. And that, that's one of the few things they did good in this film. 
they do not want you to know what is happening. They want you to be just as confused as the people stuck inside of this supposed time portal. And it, it really did it. It made it took a turn that really sent me for a loop of trying to figure out what's going on. So while we're looking for Tobin, uh, I believe Cal finds him first. Yeah, he does. And he leads him to a dead dog. And we have no idea what's going on with this dead dog, other than the fact that Becky is having some stomach cramps from being pregnant. And She's as they go forward, that. yeah, and as they go forward, Tobin introduces Cal to what he calls The Rock. And no, not Dwayne The Rock Johnson. We're talking about one of the rocks the pioneers used to ride. Yeah, we couldn't help but indulge in some nice little SpongeBob <laughs> references while watching it. But we did draw some parallels, which we will address later on in our theory time section. But we do have in... a lot of thoughts about what this rock could be. Is it a spaceship? Is it a portal through another dimension? Is it one of the greys? Is it one of the flags? We don't really know. And they don't really want to give you the answers. And a lot but of anyway. this, you know, as as the story goes on, is fueled by symbolism. You know, we see a church, which is very similar to the architecture of the one in Children of the Corn. And, very. of course, the many ravens stalking the people. But also, the, the rock itself does look very similar to the shape of the greys, as well as how they move around within the grass and how they run. You're Especially right. with the mimicking of impressions and voices and the sheer number of them, not to mention the constant stalking feeling that the greys do, along with the psychosis that they bring. Oh, I like that addition, the psychosis. You're right. Because as we find out, going through, another man comes in who Becky at first thinks is her brother, but is actually the father Ross. of... Uh, yeah, he's the father of Tobin, and his name is Ross. Yeah, Ross Humble. Ross is, yes, and he comes in looking pretty tattered up. I mean, his, he's all sweaty, he's dirty out of nowhere, and then we find out that apparently Becky got dirty too, and I have no idea how she managed to dirty up her entire shirt that fast. Well, I thought she fell taking... in the mud. Oh, no, that was... That no, was no, no. Guy. Yeah, that was Cal. He, uh, no, not Cal. Yeah, Cal. Yeah, Cal. Cal Sorry, everyone fell. gets all dirty real quick. Yeah, Cal fell down in mud after getting lost and scared because unlike most grass fields, this is just moist and damp and like mud almost yeah, the like entire quick, way. Quick, Sandy, one wrong step and your face first in a pile of mud. It's Mush. gross and not really what I expected fields to be. Like it's it's almost like a marsh, like there are frogs in there, there are cicadas. This is not a it's place definitely... you want to be trapped. It's definitely not your standard American tall grass field. No, no, no. I, I even compared it to being like in the Amazons for a minute there. I was about to start waiting for a tiger to pop out. Yeah, because at one point we hear elephant noises. We hear all kinds of different crickets. We hear all kinds of things that should not be in a grass field at all. Not in Kansas. But they're there. <laughs> yeah, especially in Kansas. Where there is nothing. No offense to those Kansas listeners out there. I'm sure you feel the same way. Enjoy the back and... roads while you can. <laughs> And so as they go through, we find out that they can't just click their heels and go home, but no. instead they have to keep going through because for some reason, as Tobin took Cal to this rock, he had a real eerie feeling about it. And uh, Tobin tells Cal, nothing in here that's dead moves. 
Oh yeah, and I guess that's their only checkpoints of where they've been is dead bodies. It's the yeah, it's the only way they're able to keep position of where they are is by keeping track of the death, which kind of sucks. Which is pretty morbid in itself. I mean, you don't want to walk up and be like, "Oh yeah, that's checkpoint number one. There's my body." Uh, I won't lie. As far as Stephen King adaptations go, this one's pretty morbid for as not so great of an adaptation as it's been. They sure do go and amp it up on the gore. They do, and then as. We find out we are introduced to the wonderful character that is the lovely boyfriend, otherwise known as good old Travis himself. He rolled up into this cornfield trying to trace the steps that Cal and Becky took in order to find them because Cal and Becky were trying to make it not only to this family, but also to their own family. But we can't mention this without acknowledging the time skip. Within the Mm -hmm. time that they've been within this field, it is told by Travis's constant exposition that it's been about two months. When to them, it's only been two days. It hasn't even been a day for them. It feels like it's only been like a few hours, maybe one overnighter, and that's it. Right, because as they're going through, you know, we do still meet good old Ross, who is trying to show Becky around, saying, stay close to me. And they travel around for a long time. They're just going through, looking around, trying to find anything. And then we are introduced to Travis, who goes in the tall grass himself, trying to find them because he hears the voice of Becky calling from inside. And she's screaming, bloody murder, saying, please help, when she hasn't done that yet at all in any of the shots that we've seen of her. Yeah, it was actually a future Becky, we come to find out, that was calling out for help, which... Like we said, the way that this thing plays with time and space, it's delirious. It really throws you off balance, and you're like, what's happening here? But they do a good job of cleaning up those little plot spills, I feel like. They do find a way to pull back to whatever is referenced, which did impress me. They do, and eventually, going through, they all manage to meet up. Travis meets up with Cal and Tobin and Becky, and they all realize that something's not right here this is where travis reveals through his extreme amount of exposition that they've been gone for two months and to them it's been like maybe a day maybe and they're realizing that the the boy that they were after tobin he's brought him back to another dead dog yeah that was freddy his own dog yeah we find out that freddy is the original reason why tobin ran in to save his dog which led to the wife of Ross running in as well, and that is good old Natalie, who then, because of her running in, leads Ross to run in. And so here's where we learn they have a brand idea. Let's put Tobin on one of our shoulders and find out where the church is and head in that direction. And it almost works. Like, it was designed to work, and they see where the church is, but the next thing you know, they are at... I don't think I'm skipping too far forward ahead but they're they're walking towards a bowling alley uh no 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 you, you went a little too far and because you might be wondering what happened to ross because he was with becky well she made a wrong turn got sidetracked and managed to end up there but we find out it's not the same becky as this new becky is much more clean much more not dirty and cal is still looking fresh himself so as they go through Eventually, they all make it back to the rock, and they find the uh, the Cal again. And they, I'm sorry, not Cal. They find Ross again, and they make it back to the rock because he says he knows a way out that he's seen. So that all together they go through, and that's where we're introduced to beautiful Natalie, 
who begins to scream bloody murder to stay away from her because for some reason she's horrified of Ross, who's done nothing up until this point. Well, she has a vision, right? I swear she had a vision. Well, she looked a whole lot more beaten up, and that was, um, I believe that was Becky who had a vision, but it was a very obscure vision, a lot of grass screaming and people wearing grass faces yeah so that is one of the other primary characters we see a lot of it's like scarecrows but their entire face is just grass i think it's easier to refer to them as the grass face i I guess that works yeah just little like stick figures with little patches of like a christmas wreath worth of grass on their face yeah it doesn't look very comfy but you know headwear these days but it is a really cool creature design, and something I kind of wish we had seen a little bit more of throughout this adaptation. That's true, because it only get, like, what, maybe five, six minutes of screen time? Not even. I I think with it, between all the cuts, they probably get a good 30 seconds shown on screen. Yeah, but anyway, so we get, they all meet up with this rock, and here's where we find out that Ross touched the rock. And upon touching it, you go insane. Yeah, he basically and... harnessed the secrets of the universe by touching the rock. It's not and a good it thing. seems like it, it, it's almost like this religious artifact to him. As he treats it like its own god, referring to everybody that they need their own redemption, and that's going to come to them regardless. And here, he squishes and murders his wife in front of everybody. Yeah, the whole head-popping thing, that was... Certainly not expected by any No, it was one of the high points of the movie, I think, that uh, Ross comes behind his wife and squeezes her till she pops, at which and... point Travis decides to be a man and stand up and ends up getting his arm dislocated. Yeah, trying to tackle him, all while Tobin is sitting there absolutely terrified, that poor little eight-year-old boy just watching his mother's head get watermeloned, basically. Like, you know, and then all the they... while, good old Cal is just, just uh, the picture is... The picturesque version of the guy you want on with on your side. Oh God, yeah, he was. There, there was some serious bystander effect going on during that whole sequence. But sorry, I was going to talk about. I keep thinking of like the water melon with like the rubber bands around it till it pops. That yeah, yeah, is how that, he would describe Natalie's like. head. Mm-hmm. It's just it, you ever seen an accordion? Just now imagine the human skull. Mm-mm. You always but, have a better way. So of they all take it. off running. <laughs> they take off running. They manage to escape Ross, and they end up at this bowling alley because apparently bowling alleys just exist in the middle of tree field, of, of grass fields. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense because in a place like this, in I think it's Kiowa County, Kansas. What else do you do besides go to church in a bowling alley? I don't think there's much more to do within the fields. <laughs> You go to church, you go to the bowling alley, all this happens in the middle of the road, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so that part, I I don't blame the, the inconsistencies, because, you know, Kansas, what else are you going to throw there? And so here's where we find out that Cal may have a little more than just wonderful brotherly love towards his sister, as he's clearly jealous of Travis, and is made well aware that... Um, he he really enjoys his sister. Yeah, it's so transparent that even Travis calls him out on it and makes it very clear. And during this time, they are being chased by Ross, who chases him to the roof of the bowling alley and where Travis and Cal try to get their bearings and ultimately leads to Travis falling off of a building. Not just falling, though, mind you. 
it was a very convenient little slip, but he grabs onto Cal's arm very last minute, and Cal is just like, you know, too much, and just lets him fall to the ground. Yeah, I think it was more jealousy, really, and, you know, the whole, well, if you're out of the picture, I can be the hero. And... It was both, I think. Yeah, and he lets he lets Travis fall to the floor to his death. Well, what we presume to be his so, death. So we he just, thought. Yeah, he cracked his head on concrete. And they escape Ross, who managed to come through a hole in the building ceiling without any real way to climb it, just manages to crawl through. And then they go it. through. <laughs> yeah, they, they go through where they came from. And, and they just stare. go back down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Up, and then they, go they just go back into the cornfield. But along the way, that is where we have a call back to the warning that Natalie had or Becky that Becky had gotten on the phone that Cal is going to kill Travis. Yeah, that's right. Because they're running through. And at this point, um, Becky and uh, Cal get separated. And we find out that Cal is murdered by Ross. And when he looks to the side, he sees multiple, multiple, multiple of his own body. Showing that this time loot has happened over and over and over again to the point where even one is just a skeleton. Yeah, it it just still blows me away the way that they play with that time because it's like not only is it happening over and over again, but it's happening differently every time. And it just like keeps recirculating itself. Like the same events of the tall grass just transpire over and over again with the same characters. It does. And and it shows like exactly how long this has been going on. And in my experience of timeless, which we'll get into later on in the theory time, something has to change for it to stop. Yes. And as we near the end of this film, we find out that Ross is still this insane man and he goes and murders or attempts to murder or chasing um, Becky and she stabs him in the eye with some scissors from that Natalie dropped a long time ago when he first fought her, or as he says, when I first tussled with Natalie. Yeah, they, they have some really weird ways that they phrase things, but we have skipped the constant dirty limericks that they are singing throughout the film. I noticed that there was a really a, a lot of, you know, really adult themes in this in this uh movie and you know we generally do like to stay clean here on the macroverse that way we can have it with all audiences we definitely got to say if you're going to watch this movie be prepared to have if you have younger viewers watching i'd say skip this one purely because of the amount of dirty limericks and references they make constantly i mean it is funny because we talk about stephen king and we try to keep it family friendly i think that is just the radio within us Mm -hmm. at the end of the day but i do have the limerick here if you think i should read it off you know and i think it's better to let the audiences discover for themselves the kind of limericks that these people come up with in apparently kansas is what they say that's fair at the same time we do assume that most of our audience listening at this point has seen the film that's true. So if you're listening, you've either seen it or haven't seen it. But either way, be prepared. There's a lot of dirty limericks in this. Yes. And it's, as it's we see, and out of place. It is. It is. It feels really out of place, especially for this movie. Like they hold really no significance to anything. I, I kind of want to blame Joe Hill because I feel like this is like one of those things where they would have thought about Stephen King and Joe Hill would have been like, "I want a dirty limerick," and Stephen King is like, "No." Only three chapter long orgies. That's all we're allowing here. We don't. We're not allowed to have dirty limericks. 
I am, of course, <laughs> referencing the It book. And I said three chapter, but I think it's more like three something pages. Yeah, something like that. There's a three involved in there. And it's, it's, uh, mm, mm, eh. yeah, I don't know. That's why it, it felt so off putting to see such a sly, but also still dirty limerick being told throughout this. Because it didn't really add anything, in my in my opinion. It didn't really add anything to the film besides more of a, what is this? Yeah, there was no substance to it. No need for it. Yeah, it just felt like they wanted to add a few more lines. But we find out that she has her baby as she's screaming. And these three people, the grass faces as we call them, lift her up and take her back to the rock. And she has starts going into labor as a hole opens up in the ground. She looks in and finds bodies and masses of just these babies that apparently she's had over time and time again. Yeah, it's actually really terrifying because there were a lot and they were they were still alive. They were still moving down there. What creeped me out the most was that they ranged in age. You know, some of them were newborns to some looking like pre-adolescent. Which makes you like question how many years in some of these variations of their lives were they stuck in there? Exactly. Or just how many times this has gone through and how long this time that has stayed. Exactly. Because I don't know how you'd survive in a field like that. Like, you're not going to want to eat dirty crows. So at the end, she passes out from seeing that, has her baby, which is then fed to her by who she thinks is Cal, but turns out to be Ross. Yeah, he, he feeds her his... No, she feeds her... Her baby, piece by piece, saying it's pieces of grass. And she's like, mmm, delicious. Thank you, chef. <laughs> and it's it's kind of Master terrible. Master Chef and America. It's another one of those things where I'm like, what is going on in their heads? Like, why, why did we decide that we were going to get to the point that we're just eating babies? So from here, we see that Ross is then attacked by Travis once more. Yeah. And is ultimately killed. By taking a key to the eye from good old Becky, and she proceeds to die. And as they murder good old Ross, and Travis decides he wants to touch the rock to figure out how to get out finally. Because he's sick of this time up there in, touches the rock, gains knowledge, and then takes Cal. Oh, I'm sorry, not Cal. He we takes the son. We skipped Cal's death, though. Uh, no, no, I said that um, Ross killed him. Well, he saw the bodies. Well, it was specifically he pulls a bone out of the ground, Ross does, and it's like shaped like a knife and just stabs him with a piece of bone. No, no, he stabbed Travis with that one when they were fighting. Wait. Oh my god, sorry, I'm all over the place. <laughs> it's an all over the place movie, I don't blame you. It was too much. But I couldn't keep up but, with it. So so he finds out where to go and just grabs um, he grabs Tobin at one point and just kind of swings him around, and then Tobin ends up in the church. Yep, saying that, and and Travis's last words was, "You need to get out of here, but I can't." And as Tobin uh, somehow descends from the tower of the church into the normal church area, he exits the front doors and sees Becky and Cal about to go in because they hear the voice of Tobin. And he convinces him not to go in because he has a necklace that was used to hurt Ross in their last confrontation. Yeah, it's covered in blood and dirt and mud. And Becky has the same exact one, but it's brand new. And they realize they need to get out of here. They re- they can't 
tell what's wrong because how do you imagine the fact that you've already been there several times in the past you've already died there but that's all it takes is this one little amulet which i guess kind of acts as like some sort of token or motif of the film but that's all it, it, it takes is sort of like catalyst i would say that's right yeah catalyst and from there we see them drive away and the credits roll yep and that and with that i think that sums up our lot very turbulent but we did it it was it was out there it was different and i think we're going to move on to our character analysis we won't spend too much time here there's really not to go much to go with it we it's a like very cut and dry much. with the characters. Yeah, cut and dry with the characters. But without further ado, we'll see you in the character breakdown. We are the Macroverse Maniacs, diving deep now into our character analysis. Okay, we are back with Into the Macroverse. I am Jacob Willett, joined here by my co-host, Levi Hill. Thank you for getting the cue. And we are now <laughs> going into our character analysis which, again, will be short because there are not that many characters this time around. On top of it, you know, most of the time we we can look really deeper into these characters, but it's very cut and dry in this film. It is, yeah. They don't really have all that much substance to them. But let's start with our main two, Cal and Becky. Oh, boy. Let's talk about Cal first. Cal, he immediately came off as a nerd creep. One of those, uh, I guess you could say a neckbeard, if you would, nice guy status. I said Harold-esque, similar to the Harold from The Stand. Very much so. He's very like uh, the guy who wants to be macho, but isn't and does not get the girl. I think the terminology our audience would probably resonate the most with would just be flat out saying he's a bit of an incel. Yeah, without a doubt. And with him, I guess he's more obsessed with his sister as his driving focus for the film. Yeah, which is, again, very uncomfortable and not at all something I was grateful to see on screen. Like just, But it really made you look forward to his downfall at the very least. Yeah, he's, at the end, you can really say that he's a very slimy, sly character. Yeah, like the whole reason he even went into the field to go and try to save Tobin was honestly just to look good and noble to his sister Becky. And not in the good old hey, I'm a good big brother way. No. And I don't But this leads us to Becky herself. Yeah, well first of all, do do we know was Becky in on this? Like did she know that her brother was this way? I feel like when we look at Becky who, you know, is that broken-hearted girl that comes from, you know, recently breaking up with her boyfriend, I think because she's pregnant. We can definitely tell that. I, I don't think she was in on it, but ha- but she felt really uncomfortable with it. Yeah, because when she w- goes and she has her morning sickness on the road and she throws up, the way he was, like, rubbing her, I didn't, I didn't even, I would have thought that they were, like, husband and wife, and I didn't like that. And you could tell Becky didn't really like it either. Yeah, you know, at first they give off the impression, up until the point Cal says, our parents, and I was like, wait a minute. Now, hold on a minute exactly. right there. <laughs> and, and and we, we see that, and it's very uncomfortable. And we can tell that, you know, she does care for her brother, you know, as any good sibling would. And she's definitely not reciprocating those feelings, but I think that she's just kind of indulging the idea of just trying to make it seem like he's being a good brother and ignore it. 
I, I mean, if anything, it's more that she just needs the support, you know? Yeah. Like, she, Becky's going through it a lot right now. And Becky, you know, as as complicated as she may be as a single mother or soon to be single mother, and the tri- and you know the trials that she's going to face soon. Yeah, knowing this and you know knowing where she's going with this, you know, it, it's a lot on her plate, and I can see where she wants, you know, just someone there. Yeah, I mean, she would not have wanted to do that road trip all by herself, especially not with morning sickness and everything else that comes along with a pregnancy. Mm-mm. No, that's that's too much time behind the wheel. Let's be real. And Tobin next. So we're introduced to Tobin just basically screaming and crying out for help. Yeah, and you know, I guess the best way to describe Tobin is crying. Yeah, crying he's, and screaming. He's just, he's just really traumatized and unhappy, and clearly a child that has seen way too much. He's definitely someone who he he. I'd say he's like the one that the, the uh, how would you say the in distress constantly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, obviously his dad's insane. Yeah, and you know. There's really nothing too special about him, aside from the fact that at first he seems really creepy, and then we just forget about that version of him and move on to the next. Because he he said some really omniscient things, like he like predicted Travis's death and predicted that Travis was even coming to begin with. He did, and he also touched the rock in the beginning yes. as well. And then from there, that entire little plot is just thrown out the window and we get regular Tobin, who's just a traumatized boy trying to live. Yeah, I don't know what that shift was because I kind of was assuming it was going to be another one of those situations similar to Children of the Corn, where he's in on it and he's helping his family with their horrible murder plot. But then you realize he's not or maybe they realized halfway through writing the script. that Hey, we've already done this before. We can't do this again. Make the kid good. Make the kid good. And that leads us to Cal. I'm sorry, not yeah. Cal. Um, Ross. Ross. Who is the husband of Natalie and father to Tobin, who ultimately, I think he's the most complex of all the characters. But don't forget that realty's his game. He will not let you forget it. No, throughout the movie, he said that, what, six, seven, eight times? He, he said it way more times than he needed to, but basically the core of his personality was that he's a businessman, and a realtor, and he didn't even really feel too bothered with his kid wanting to go into the field to begin with. He was like, I'm on the phone. I'm busy. I've got important money-related things to talk about here. Realty is his game. Yeah, so he he definitely is a little slimy, even to begin with in the beginning of the film. You get that impression that he's not that great of a person just right off the bat. But then he's really he's not. Going. He definitely puts work before family. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, as he's going into the cornfield, why can't you just be a mother and just watch your son for once as yeah, he's complaining? Um, like, where, where did that... That was out of nowhere. Like, your your family dog just ran into the cornfield. Cornfield, sorry, the grass field. And so here we find out that he's actually a psychotic killer because he touched the rock, and the rock altered his mind and forced him to go on this religious crusade for the rock. Yeah, very much devoted to this very alien-looking rock. Again, we compared it to a ship from Dreamcatcher, which we'll be talking about later on in this segment. Yeah, and, and ultimately, you know, his his entire arc is that at first he's very helpful, but then turns out to be the most sinister of the bunch, murdering anyone who stands between him and his rock. Yeah, he is the villain of the story. Even though you wouldn't 
have really assumed that right off the bat. They do a good job, at least, of making the characters start off really suspecting or really unsuspecting and then kind of diverting that expectation. They do. They, it's, so there's complete 180s in a lot of these people. Like, you know, I first thought that the son was going to be evil, dad's going to help, but it turned out to be the complete opposite. Dad yep. was evil, son helped. Yeah. And then let's go on to Natalie, who, let's be honest. No, Travis did... was next. Oh, Travis is next. Okay. Travis. Good old you Travis. You really want to talk I... about Travis. Also, I do want to talk about I'm Travis. I'm going to let you do this part. So Travis, to me, I feel is this guy who realized he made a mistake and is just trying to fix it. He's just trying to fix it. He's trying to do the best he can, realizing that, you know what, he apparently wanted to be a rock star and having a kid really scared him, which, you know, I guess you could say as a young, you know, any young person having a, uh, you know, having a child, it's horrifying. You know, you don't know what to do. You don't know what to expect. And, you know, you can be as prepared as ever, you know, loved up in a good household, but still scary because you're bringing a life into this world. He just wasn't ready for that. Yeah. Yet. And I'm pretty sure they were in their early 20s. Like Becky, Cal, oh, and yeah. Travis were all like, like fresh out of college aged or even still in college aged type individuals. I'd say 21 to 25. Something like that. Yeah. And, you know, they're barely getting their careers going, finding out who they are in the world there because, you know, even at that age, you're still figuring out everything. You don't have everything. You don't have all the answers and you're just trying to make it through. But there was no time in the script for them to tell us what any of the people did. There was no background for anyone but the realtor. No, no, no. Travis was apparently a rock star. Trying to be. That's all the backstory we got from him was that he wanted to be a rock star, got Becky pregnant, and dipped. Yeah, that was it. That that was, again, they, they really skimped on the backstory. And I think that's not all that conventional for King. So with... With, with him, I think that he really made a great arc from being, you know, as soon as we saw him, we're like, oh, great, this jerk. But he ended up being, you know, willing to make the sacrifice play. He went from, like, the deadbeat dad to the hero of the story. Exactly. And, you know, he, he was able to take what we thought of him and, like everybody else, aside from Cal and Becky, did the complete 180 with his own character. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to Natalie. And I can sum up her entire character with just a few words and that head becomes watermelon. Yeah. Pop. She she didn't get very much time whatsoever. All we knew was that she was kind of at the mercy of her husband. And really just did really got pushed to the side. Like they didn't really give her much time at all. I'd say they pushed inward. I I knew you were gonna say that, but thank you. <laughs> oh yeah, she really got the squeeze on this one. I'm not even gonna laugh at that, man. Oh man! Either way, they all all these characters kind of do a complete one eighty, and it's that characterization of good and evil that we know Stephen King just eats up. He absolutely loves doing that character reversal, that whole good versus evil dynamic. I think that worked out. You know, everybody had a one wonderful arc except Natalie, who was just mind blowing, quite literally. And from there, you know, I think we can dive into our theories, our favorite time of the show. We can. It is now time for our Macroverse Theory Time, right after this quick break.
we've talked plot, we've discussed the characters, and by this point, you know how we feel about the Stephen King adaptation. Now, it's time for our favorite part of the Into the Macroverse episode, where we bring up our theories and beliefs about how everything happening within this universe is a part of something bigger. That is right, folks. It's Macroverse Theory Time. Okay, we are back with Into the Macroverse. I, of course, am one of your co-hosts, Jacob Willett, joined here by my co-host, Levi Hill. Thank you for getting the queue again. We're getting good at that. We are <laughs> getting our footing back. We took, like I said, a long two-month hiatus from any recording, any uploading. And for all of you that have been sticking with us, thank you for pushing through this break. At the current moment of recording, it is December 21st. It's been a bit. We've been a bit busy, but we're here with our winter weirdness for the macroverse. Yes, we are. And we want I to like go. That. I do like that. I keep doing that. Winter weirdness. Winter weirdness. And I think, like, you know, we did mention this earlier in the show, the strange correlation of the ravens that we're seeing all throughout the film. Yeah, there are a lot of ravens. And if you've watched through our stand episode, you would know that the raven slash the crow is best associated with the Randall flag, the Crimson King himself, the master of the macroverse, basically. No, no, he serves the Crimson King. He serves the... Oh, my God. (laughs) He serves the Crimson King. But he's definitely lieutenant to the Crimson King himself, much like Pennywise is too. Uh, the Crimson King as well. Yes, the Crimson Definitely King. underlings, right-hand mans, if you would. Many right-hand men, very much so. And what got me about this was the constant use of the Raven's Eye, and of course, someone watching through the, the uh, tall grass. Now, it can be assumed that it was Ross in his, I guess, the corrupted form, but it didn't seem like Ross's eye to me. It was very, you know, much more wrinkled, much more, a little pronounced more. A lot of uh, his, the facial structures didn't match up. And we haven't seen before that Randall does like to hide behind rows of corn and other various things. Other, and take a standing by the tall watch. things. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where you get that like introspection, like looking in pushing out and you know you see him looking through you can sense randall flag looking through those dead crow's eyes and you can understand that he probably has a very pivotal role in how these characters are progressing through the story like he does i think he has an influence because he is one of the few beings of the macroverse that we know has the power to basically do mind control and i we can best compare that to what we haven't covered yet the shine from the shining that telepathy that ability to peer into someone else's mind alter reality yes and i think that this is a big part because as we notice it seems like the tall grass itself the field is constantly and ever changing it is always moving around and i feel like that's also because of his influence of being able to mess with reality in a way and make people see things that they haven't seen before think that are seen that are halfway not there's one scene in particular i think of where all of a sudden the tall rows of grass just freeze they just completely stop in one fluid motion 
Because throughout the entire film, the grass is constantly flowing and moving around and has a mind of its own. And then there's one pivotal scene. I can't remember exactly the context behind this particular moment, but it's towards the end where the grass just stops moving. It's during the pivotal fight scene. You're right. With um, Travis and Ross. Ross, yeah. And during their fight, it stops. Almost as if it's watching itself with anticipation. Exactly. And they were fighting near the rock, which leads me into the second theory of ours that we had. The Greys themselves. Yes, we couldn't help but compare this rock to the burning piece of probably a ship that you see in the beginning of Dreamcatcher. It it looks very similar, has a similar shape and style to the ships that are shown in Dreamcatcher and what goes on within them, as well as the sheer amount of numbers and of course the fear building up within them much as we've seen the greys do before and for me as soon as they touched the rock they were instantly corrupted much like how the greys instantly corrupted and knew everything about a person and what would happen when they take over a body exactly it's very similar to that and that's why we run so hard with this because in the original Dreamcatchers episode that we made back in April of 2022, when we first started this series, mm-hmm. yeah, we speculated that this ship or whatever it was could have also just been a portal from one universe into another, the way that the Greys or the Randall Flag himself can find their way from the higher universe onto Earth. It can, and I think that it uh, played a really big factor here because it seemed to have that numbers game entirely, and throughout the entire uh, film, we see shots of the grass moving, and to me, it felt like a lot of the grays were within the grass, altering, feeding off of the fear, and just going through with their ultimate plan of causing this to happen, and the time loop itself. Exactly, and that time loop is crucial because as we know with the grays, they can play with time as they choose. It is their plaything. Like they can just change it whenever they want. This is evident through it as he's able to make people experience things that seem to happen for an hour and then boom, you're just right back where you started. And it was the, all in your head. It's the same thing with the re the not remakes, but the the different terminology they use for something that's a not original but not a remake. Just a a reinterpretation of it. In Mm -hmm. in chapter one, the 2017 it, there's the house. And he goes into the house and it looks like it's present day. It looks like a present day home, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And to me, I think that's really interesting how they're able to mess with time. And this, the field itself could be, as we've seen before, as they have landed in open fields and places where it's very rural it could be a nesting ground for them or a landing site. It could be and like a breeding spot, landing site, portal different universe. There are a lot of different ways we can interpret what this rock or this ship, whatever it really is. And that leads me to our final theory. And that being, of course, the influence of the Wendigo that we've seen in Pet Cemetery. The reason this brings me to this is because I personally think with the way that the grass faces looked and how their faces were arranged, it seemed mm-hmm. very 
similar to the bunny masks and different symbolisms used in Pet Cemetery, as well as the Native American symbols that were supposedly carved out onto the rock, and also the corruption of a soul, an innocent soul, when when coming in contact with this artifact, instantly did what happened in the Wendigo's land of taking that person, in this case, Ross, who was kind-hearted, courageous, someone who really wanted to help, turned it around and made him into someone who was vengeful, angry, and wanting the death of others. Yeah, and you're very right with that idea that those all those dead bodies in this field could have very much been turned into these grass creatures, this army. And and to me, I'm thinking, all right, so we see these grass things, and a lot of people saying, you know, once you die, you become one with the grass, you know, the grass. And it seems to me that I'm thinking maybe the Wendigo has its influence here because we see the emergence of these things living again and again and again okay. and the grass people the grass faces and of course the bodies of the babies yes oh exactly who as we know a baby calls out to its mother it wants love but these babies instead want a death and sacrifice fuck i might have a baby <laughs> <laughs> so that's what leads me to believe that perhaps the wendigo could uh be part of this it's, it's a great theory, and I'd like to see where you can continue to run with that, because I, I feel like as we choose these very random films to cover, because we don't really have a structure to how we choose these adaptations, it never feels right, but we're always able to find these new conclusions to things that we already thought in the past were concluded. Yeah, and for example, it's been a while since we've seen the return of the Wendigo and a lot of the macroverse, you know, from, you know, the time of the stand, we've really focused on the idea that flag is behind the plot. And in this film in particular, though we see a lot of symbolism with flag, I feel as though because of the calling cards of Native Americans and how ravens do play a lot in Native American culture and are known to be tricksters, known to be um, the pranksters in you know our folklore and culture mm -hmm. we see that they also you know can be seen to trick people and what goes on within the tall grass constant mind tricks constant it's and to me the constant also tricks. yeah and you know the also the resurrection of people which we've only really seen you know flag do and of course um the wendigo itself yeah it's only touched on in very specific points in this Stephen King chronology and all of these decades of works. So to me, I feel even though that a lot of, you know, we see a lot of symbolism between them, I still think I, I'm really leaning into the idea that this is Wendigo territory. Okay, I like that because we have seen where like Pet Cemetery takes place and there are very specific hubs, very specific small towns, places that seem to have some sort of ancestral ground beyond them. Mm -hmm. And for me, another thing that really kicks it is the dirt itself. Okay, the so. muddy slosh, the, you know, real fertilized earth, which is very similar when you put, like, you know, a dead body in something constantly. You know, it gets that. It makes the ground moist. It makes it very fertile ground. That's the word you're looking say, for. Very fertile. malleable. Yeah. And to me, you know, one thing that a one requires is to sacrifice you know, the constant need for blood, and that blood is a constant factor that is mentioned within the film. 
You're right. And I feel like though he may not, you know, it doesn't look like the, you know, the idea of dead ground, which is constantly, which is, you know, commonly associated with a Wendigo, the idea that, you know, the dead ground, bad land. To me, I feel as though it's interpreted in a different way in this film and the dead ground being the malleable soil because of the dead bodies. I really like the way you're going with this. And I guess we're going to have to figure out which film of the next few adaptations we're going to cover will go beyond that. Which one will have that Wendigo presence that we're trying to prove? Mm-hmm. Because every time we continue through these adaptations, we find more to support previous claims we made months ago. Mm-hmm. And though we did say that the Wendigo and the Greys might be in cahoots with one another, I think that maybe it could also be possible that all three play a factor in this tall grass. Yeah, maybe. Because we see the symbolism of flag. We see the calling cards of the Greys. And of course, we see the effects of the Wendigo. Yeah, maybe evil works together better better than we would previously than we would have previously imagined. Maybe they really do not fight each other, but work together to all get the same outcome, the same goals. I think so, and I think this is a good place to leave everybody with, with this thought in mind. There was a line said by Ross, and that line was, "This is the center." This is the middle of everything of the universe. And that, that makes me think me. if this is the middle of the universe within the macroverse, if this is what this guy is talking about, why wouldn't they want to work together and put their differences aside exactly. to control the center? And that kind of brings some validity to our statement that, again, that there are certain places throughout the Stephen King universe where there really is. A center of it all there's a spot where everything kind of cohabitates and works together because we do see some territory seems to be charted by randall flag some territory seems to be owned by the greys and some territory is strictly for the wendigos mm-hmm. but this is the first time we've seen all of these factors together and to me i think because of the statement that this could be a epicenter i don't see a reason why they wouldn't to sit down and play victims and ultimately because of the time they will have that endless loop which was ultimately broken and if you're a fan of time travel like myself um, the only way to stop a time loop is to correct the order and do it right and that's what Tobin did he did it right and managed to break the chain which of course would mess with all three's power Exactly. but at the end of the day it makes me wonder is there more places that these forces can work together. Is there more to the Wendigo than we previously thought before? And this is definitely a question that will be answered as we continue through the macroverse. So, for myself and for all the listeners out there, I want to say keep questioning, keep wondering, and never trust what seems to be. I remember our phrase in the beginning was just keep asking questions. Always. Always ask questions. Stay curious. Never accept things at face value. Because that's what we do here. We don't accept it at face value. We just keep pushing beyond what we already speculated and make something new out of it. And for Mm -hmm. as not as great of a film adaptation as this has been, macroverse-wise, it's rich. It has a lot to it in terms of the macroverse. Much like the ground, it's very fertile. So hopefully we'll see more of the Wendigo 
and hopefully some more questions will be answered. Yes, but do not get off this Macroverse train because even when we take those short breaks, which are longer to us than they do feel, we're not going to stop. We're just going to keep going. Like We have no reason to not keep asking questions, to not keep pushing through this mystery and hopefully unravel the secrets of this Macroverse strictly through the film adaptations without having to go through every single thousand page book how much of this story can be pieced together solely through the films of Stephen King so stay tuned as we work our way through this winter weirdness you've been listening to Levi Hill and Jacob Willett And this has been a speculative dive into yet another one of Stephen King's twisted tales. So don't trust that sound you hear. Always keep a watchful eye. And don't look under the bed, because you never know what you may stumble upon when you wander your way into the Macroverse.